Let's begin by entering into prayer together at this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all your good gifts to us. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that he died for our sins and was buried and that you raised him from the dead on the third day. We thank you for your grace and that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. We thank you for your word, which is living and powerful. We thank you, Father, for the body of Christ. And we thank you for all the gifts that you've given the body. We ask this morning, Father, for your care and intervention in the lives of those believers who are hurting in any way this morning, especially those in the persecuted church. We do want to pray this morning for Joyce, who uh, tested positive for COVID. We just pray that uh, she get heals up real soon. And uh, we also pray for Lee. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Just a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, another scheduling note. Uh, it's time to plan the summer vacation week. And so this year we're going to do it August 22nd through the 30th. August 22nd through the 30th. And there'll be no services on Thursday, August 25th or Sunday, August 28th. I'll keep announcing that, but just to give you a heads up on that. Also, Kingsley Amaniki is uh, in the middle of a mission trip to Trinidad. So we would just ask that you keep that in prayer and we will, we will continue to do that also. All right, let's uh, let's get started. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 37. John chapter 10, verse 37. We're going to uh, look today at a uh, an event in the life of the Lord that was was very unique and bittersweet. And it has to do with where this all began with John the Baptist and all the way back in chapter one. The title of today's message comes always, as always from our passage. And it's the place where John was first baptizing, the place where John was first baptizing. So let's begin. John chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus is speaking. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me. Believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking to, again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign yet, Everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Last time we were listening to Jesus give his final appeal to the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, the priests, the Pharisees. We see it in in verse 37, where Jesus told them, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. He was pointing at the very end when he's he's pleading for these Jewish leaders, right? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, to believe in him because he came as the Messiah of the nation of Israel. And remember, it's the leadership that would govern whether or not Israel would receive their Messiah. And so he, we saw he's taken pains now from chapter five forward in his interactions and arguments and debates with these leaders to give them every opportunity to believe in him as the Messiah and God's son. 
This is the last time he's going to do that. This is his final appeal. And I want you to notice again, as we saw last week, he's staking his entire claim. He claims to be the Messiah, the Christ. He claims that God is his father. Now, he's said that many times, and many, many people believe simply on his words. But now, in these, these most stubborn, hard-hearted people of all, he's appealing finally just to his works. This included his miracles, like, like healing the man born blind and, and healing the lame man. It also included the other things that he did in obedience to his father. All of that constituted what he's talking of here as the body of his works. He's saying, I present all of this to you once again. And if you believe those, then you will start to know the truth. You will start to know that the Father's in me. In other words, I and the Father are one. We're the same. Father's in me, and I am in the Father. That you may know this and then prove to understand it. Because once you open your heart to the truth about who Jesus is, then he pours in the, the knowledge, the, the ability, the opportunity to know the truth and have it set you free. But that was all in vain. Because once again... And this is the final opportunity now. Those priests and Pharisees, this time forcefully, once again, rejected him as their Messiah. They had, they had turned to threats of violence, remember. There were several times when, he, when they wanted to stone him. And here, once again, one more time, they attack him when he tells them that this is your opportunity to believe in me. Look at verse 39 again. Therefore, they, they, of course, being what John calls the Jews, that is not usually the nation as a whole, all the people, it's usually addressed to the religious leaders. Okay, and we see that expression. In any event, once again, they forcefully reject him as their Messiah. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. Remember, they were plotting to, 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 to bring him to, his, to death. And once again, they're seeking to seize him for that purpose. And he eluded their grasp because his hour had not yet come. It would come soon. It would come at the end of chapter 12, right? When he, when he understood and they understood that he was going to go to the cross and die for the nation and for the sin of the world. But at this point, that hour hadn't come so that they were not able to seize him. They were not able to stone him to death. He eluded their grasp. And while his hour hadn't come, the hour for the priests and the Pharisees to believe in him has now passed. The fate, therefore, of the nation of Israel is now sealed. Jesus' own had not received him. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Another time, Jesus was instructing his disciples who were about to go out and preach the gospel to the cities of Judea. And as he did so, he told them what to do if they were rejected. And that's what we that's what we see here in Luke chapter nine, verse five. As for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, he was instructing the, the disciples to do so when he went when one of them went to one of the cities of Judea all right, and they rejected the message. But what could be a greater rejection than the leaders of the nation in Jerusalem, the capital city, rejecting the Messiah himself. So one has to wonder if when Jesus went out from Jerusalem, if he shook the dust off his feet and headed in the opposite direction. He headed east. Went out, he went out from Jerusalem. That was the final opportunity for them to receive him as their Messiah and to recognize that he's God's son. And they rejected him and he left. 
he went out from that city and he headed east. Well, the trip that he would take now is only a few miles, probably under 20 miles, which in that day and age when they were walking, of course, but they could do 30 miles in a day when they walk, when they want, because that was their main means, especially for the for the poor and middle. They don't have a middle class, but all but the rich had to walk. And so Jesus goes out from Jerusalem. He's walking, heading east. And like I said, it's really not that far, probably about 15 or 20 miles or so. But I want to show you. Well, give a little geography this morning. Okay, it's not working. Why do I have so much trouble? Let's go with yellow. There we go. Oh, anyway, you can see it. Oh, yeah, it is showing up. It wasn't showing up on my screen. All right, so in any event, okay, we have Jerusalem. I kind of circled it, right? Let me actually, let me, let me get rid of that and do it again. Never mind. All right. So we have Jerusalem. That's where he was. That's where he left. That's where he may have shaken the dust of that city off his feet as a final indication that they had rejected him as a final testimony. He's leaving. He's going east. You can see that uh, if you see the other two red arrows here, you can see there's a river in between those arrows. That's the Jordan River. Okay, It flows into the Dead Sea, which is that sea you see at the bottom of the picture here, bottom of the of the of the graphic. And he headed east from Jerusalem, and he ended up to the place where he, John was first baptizing. And it's called Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, we can't be 100% sure that that was the location because John didn't give us the geography. But based on other factors, we're pretty sure that that was the location. Now, when he did so, he left the province of Judea and went into, it's not on the map, but, a, but another province, Perea. Another province. So he left Judea. It's very symbolic what he's doing here. The trip was only a few miles, but in that in so doing, he was leaving Judea. He was leaving the place where the uh, chief priests and Pharisees were, and he was going to another place, a place that will turn out to be much, much more receptive to him and to the message of the gospel, as we shall see. All right, look at verse 40 now. John chapter 10, verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. He remained there for a time. Many came to him and they were saying, while John performed no sign, Jesus performed miracles. John didn't. John was a prophet. He didn't he didn't perform miracles. He gave no direct sign in terms of a miracle or his great power, but he didn't have to. Because the, his words would be validated by the very person of Jesus Christ and what he would do, what Jesus would do. John, while John performed no sign, yet everything, notice this, everything John said about this man was true. This is a heck of a statement, by the way, because we're going to go back this morning. We're going to we're going to revisit chapter one and chapter three to just help us remember, reflect on all the things that John the Baptist said about Jesus at the very start. The very start of actually he launched the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, he baptized him and he proclaimed who he was. He said, I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. And he said, we're going to see all the things, the amazing things that he said about Jesus. The very start. These were the things that he that were rejected again and again and again in Jerusalem. They, 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 but but so the contrast this morning is going to be between those who should have known 
religious leaders, the experts on the scripture, experts on the Old Testament, should and did know all the prophecies of the Messiah and yet rejected Jesus completely. In other words, they, they believed nothing of what John the Baptist said about Jesus who was coming and did come. On the other hand, these simple people on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, they recognized when they reflected on what John had said and they for themselves saw and heard themselves, this man, this Jesus, they realized that, yes, everything John said was true. It's a tremendous statement. In other words, Jesus left the place of stubborn unbelief. You couldn't get more stubborn unbelief than what Jesus experienced at the hands of the chief priests, the Pharisees, and all the people that followed them. It's only a small minority, a very tiny minority in Jerusalem that believed in Jesus at this point in time. Almost everybody sided with the chief priests and the Pharisees against him. Those who, especially those who were in leadership that believed in him, hid it. They didn't want their cohorts to even know that they believed in him. When the blind man was healed and, they, and the Pharisees brought their, his parents to question them, they knew that Jesus had healed their son, but they, didn't, they refused to say so because they were worried, concerned, fearful that they would be thrown out of the synagogue if they did. That was in Judea. That was in Jerusalem. Now he's coming to a place that east of the Jordan where he had a he, he, he the people there came to an informed belief. What does that mean? It means they had knowledge. And on that basis, they believed in him. That is the same way in which we believed and continue to learn and grow. God doesn't keep us in the dark. And, and then we hear a voice that says, you must believe in my son. You must believe in Jesus without knowing anything about Jesus. By the way, when we witness, we should keep that in mind, that, it, that as we, we are serving the people that we are witnessing the gospel to. And, and part of that is to let them know. I mean, the good news is about the person of Jesus Christ. We're not, the Lord isn't expecting anybody to believe in him blindly. Always gives information for us about Jesus. Same thing for us as believers in Christ. When, whenever the Lord is asking us to do something, he first gives us the information before he asks us, for example, to consider ourselves dead to sin. He first points out that when Christ died on the cross, we died with him. And on the basis of knowing that, now we can consider ourselves to be dead to sin. It's the, it's the way in which the Lord operates with every person. So they had a, they, we're going to see this, that, that they came to an informed belief that they, unlike the, the leadership, the Pharisees, that never came to know and therefore understand him, the people in this, in this place, the people that we're going to see that not just live there, but came when they heard that Jesus was there, they came to know and firsthand and understand and believe that everything John said about this man was true. I like to, let's go back now. To John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we find in the prologue of this gospel. Introduction, if you want to think of it that way. But really, a powerful synopsis of everything that was going to come to pass as John wrote this gospel. He summarized at the very beginning. He said it all. And at the very beginning, there were those who believed in him based on John's testimony, namely the ones who would become Jesus' disciples, like Philip, Nathaniel, and Andrew, and Simon Peter. 
But in the prologue, we also see what would happen. John told us as readers of this gospel, before we saw it unfold in the in the narrative that his people would reject him. So we know as readers from the very beginning, from the moment that Jesus comes on the scene and John says these amazing things about him to when he moves out in the miracle at Cana of turning the water into wine and he continues to go. He gets baptized himself. He he then continues with his miracles. Right? He healed the, 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 the servant of a um, centurion. He did all of these things. But we know, because we read chapter 1 first, that he's going to finally be rejected. And, you know, that puts us in a sense behind his eyes, because that was the same thing for him. He knew from the beginning that no matter what he did or said, the leadership, the power center, the ones that determine the fate of the nation— we're going to reject him. I mean, think of it. Think of yourself in that situation. I mean, when we when we witness the people, I mean, there's at least a little hope that they're going to believe in the gospel. So a lot of times we are ready for rejection because then is now majority are going to reject Jesus Christ. But Jesus had absolute certainty in his mind that the people he was imploring and he did so much he 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 argued with them he plead pled with them he did miracles so that they would believe knowing full well that they would never do it that's quite a man that would do that of course he's the god man the lord jesus christ john chapter 1 verse 11 he came to his own in context by the way that's the nation of israel as a whole he came to his own and those who were his own notice did not receive him did not receive him that's the stubborn unbelief that he that he witnessed and experienced in Judea, in Jerusalem in particular. But notice verse 12. But as many as received him, some would, a minority to be sure. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. You are adopted as a son of or a daughter of the God of the universe, God the Father. We didn't work for that. Nobody knew the formula for that. All we did was believe in Christ. God did it. Like everything else that comes out of faith, it's by grace, not of works. But he does the most amazing things first, right? We were dead, and now we became alive. Amazing. We were not his children. We were his enemies, and, we, and he made us into his children. We were we were we were lost and he found us. If you think about all the things he he had, the the Holy Spirit indwell us forever at the moment we believed in Christ. He placed us in union by the baptism of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ forever. All these things he did for us by grace through faith. They do take faith because none of us can see a change. It's not as if the moment we believed in Christ, all of a sudden our body transformed into this amazing body. Hey, look, look at this body. I'm now a child of God. It didn't happen. It's all based on knowing and believing. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even as those who simply believe in his name, who were born, not of blood. It wasn't because who you're related to. It wasn't in in the case of the Jewish people because they were sons of Abraham. Because John said when he was witnessing, he said, you know what? God can take the stones and turn them into sons of Abraham. It wasn't by flesh or by blood. It wasn't by the will of the flesh. 
In other words, it wasn't that, for example, the desire of a, of a man to have children, or the will of any man, but of God. He left the place of stubborn unbelief, and he came to a place of informed belief, left those who would never receive him, came to those who would believe in him, become children of God, born again. He also, the place was called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And here he also came to a place of rest, a place of tranquility. He had left a place of threatened and even actual violence against him. And here for a short time, probably a, a week or two, he came to a place where he could rest, relax, reflect, prepare for the rigors of what was to follow. When he, would, when he would once more be in the city of Jerusalem, only this time it would be his hour. And this time they would arrest him and put him on trial. And he would be condemned to die a death of crucifixion. So this was his sort of last moment almost for him to rest and reflect. And he was at such a symbolic place when he did that, place where it all began. It was a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And again, the map, we have Jerusalem. And you can see that's where he left. He headed across the river, the Jordan River, and now he's on the other side, for the moment anyway, safe, place where he could rest, where he wouldn't be um, harassed by the, the, the Jewish leaders, where he would find a lot, a lot of people who would come to him and believe in him. Back to where it all began. He began his public ministry right here. It must have been a very bittersweet time for Jesus. I mean, think of it. He knows what's ahead of him. He knows he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be rejected and mocked and spat upon. Knows all of that. And he would mourn for that city. You know, he loved Jerusalem. Why? Because it was the place where his father had said, and he said, that there would one day be a kingdom that would, that would have the whole remnant of Israel as the, as the, as the focused subjects, the royalty, along with Jesus Christ. He knew all the promises. He knew what, when David was in Jerusalem, what a great kingdom he had. And so at this time, in his humanity, which remember, he's God and human, and we see things in the Gospel of John that, that we're going to see him next chapter when we see him healing Lazarus, not healing him, but, but raising him from the dead. We're going to see that he had emotion in his humanity. And it, so you must have imagined, must imagine, you know, put ourselves in his shoes, realize that there was a bittersweet time. He, he knew that, that very soon, not only would he die, but also in a little while after that, the city of Jerusalem would be no more. It would be, as he called it, a house that would soon be left desolate. So that was the bitter time part. But there was, it was also a very sweet time for him because this place held fond, fond memories for him. Now, I think sometimes we spiritualize Jesus and, and we, we forget to remember that he's, he was human being as well as God. While he never sinned, he was as human in every other way as we were. So he, he, had, he, he remembered when he first came on the scene and he, he remembered the great things that John said about him. When he first interacted with his disciples, when he first met them, it was, a, it was an, a, a tremendous day for them and also for him because they were to be his companions. They would be the first ones who would believe in him, declare him to be the son of God, to say that he was the Messiah. It was the place where John first baptized, including baptizing him, as a sign of righteousness, 
him identifying with the sins of the world, that John testified again that Jesus was the Son of God. That was the place where he did it. It was the place where the Spirit descended on Jesus when he came out of the water. And his father, a voice from heaven, declared that he was well pleased with his son and that everybody should listen to him. If only the nation of, of Israel had done what the father had commanded and listened to Jesus, it would have been totally different. But it wasn't to be. Let's go back to John chapter 10, verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptized. And he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, well, John performed no sign. Yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. And again, we don't know how long Jesus stayed here in Bethany beyond the Jordan. But it couldn't have been very long. It couldn't have been much more than a week or two. But one thing, we know that, that the memory of his attempted murder in Jerusalem was very fresh on the minds of his disciples when they left once again this location and went back into Judea. So it wasn't really long, but it was a place where they were among friends. It was a small town. There's a contrast in every way between Bethany beyond the Jordan and Jerusalem. And you can imagine that in this place of rest, tranquility and peace where they were among friends and where many came to believe in him. Many authenticated what John had said because they now had seen Jesus himself. They were there with him. These are the many people now. You can imagine that Peter or somebody else might have said to the Lord, do we really have to go back to Jerusalem? Can't we just stay here? Let's just set up a ministry here where it's safe and where people like us. But it wasn't, of course, that was, you know, Jesus at one time when Peter said something similar said, get behind me, Satan. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine. I mean, that was a bad day for Peter when Jesus called him Satan. I don't know about you, but if Jesus called me Satan, that would be a bad day. And of course, he had other bad days, too, when he, when he denied him. And then that, that cock crowing thing when it's three, three times, you know, Peter uh, had to learn lessons the hard way in any event. So the small town that they were in, Bethany beyond the Jordan, friends, safety. This was the time where Jesus could rest for a while. This was a time when he and the disciples could take stock of all that had happened. It was a time to reflect on everything that happened since that day three years earlier when Jesus first arrived, when John called him the Lamb of God. Let's go to John chapter 1 again, verse 23 now. John chapter 1, verse 23. Because the people that would come to him in, in Bethany beyond the Jordan would kept saying to themselves, you know, John never performed a sign, but everything John said about this man was true. So they, too, were reflecting on what, what at the very beginning, what was said about Jesus. For example, look at John chapter one, verse 23. And John said this was in response to the for the priests and the Pharisees asking him, who are you? I mean, here you are, you're dressed funny, you know, you're eating, you're eating locusts and wild honey, and yet you're preaching in such a powerful way. You have all kinds of people coming again across the Jordan into where he was baptizing and being baptized. 
and, and understanding that the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, who are you? What gives you the right to baptize? And, he, and they said, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? He says, no. Are you the prophet then? He says, no. I am just the voice, verse 23, crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Look at verse 28. These things took place at, in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the Lamb, in the, in, in, according to the Old Testament and according to the Jews and their understanding of their religion, was very significant. When, when Moses led the people out, before they left and they celebrated in the Passover supper, they sacrificed a lamb. When, when, uh, even before that, when Cain and Abel were both bringing sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, Abel brought uh, of the flock that he was uh, shepherding probably a lamb. And so they understood the significance in some way, but they hadn't heard the lamb being applied to a person. John was saying, here he is. He didn't say a lamb. He said, what? The lamb of God. What did that mean? You know, I'm sure with the, with the eyes of faith, some understood, had an inkling anyway, that this, that this would finally be the sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world. But how and why and all those questions. Well, now three years later, Jesus is back in the same place. Many people came once again, but they came to see him now. Now, we aren't told where all these people came from. Perhaps some were local, right? But many, most crossed the Jordan from Judea to see him, as so many had earlier, three years earlier when John was baptizing there. Let's go back now to John chapter 10, verse 40. this morning when we read of people that were thinking about what John had said and realizing that Jesus was everything that John said he would be, it gives us an opportunity to do the same thing, right? For us too to refresh our memories of what John had said, to think about the amazing things that he said, to realize that there were people at that time who said everything that John said about this man was true. Again, verse 40. As he went and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to see him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. I want you to notice that John repeats that word many. He's emphasizing it. Why? Because this at last was fruitful ground for the Lord. He had left a desert when it came to faith, when he left Jerusalem. But here in an unlikely place outside of Judea, this was so fruitful, fruitful ground. So many believed in him there. So many came to him there. So many kept saying what they said about him, that everything that John had said about this man was true. And yet, ultimately, if you look at the big picture, this was still a small minority because many, many more would reject him. But, but that's another thing that we have an opportunity to reflect on today. Because while in every generation, the large majority reject Jesus, they reject the truth of who he is. In every generation, there's, there are a little flock of people 
who believe in him. Even among the Jews, in every generation, if you go all the way back, there was never a time when nobody believed in the Lord. Nobody followed the Torah. Nobody accepted and were looking forward to the promises that the Lord had made Abraham. There were always some, a small number most of the time. When Jesus was born, there were only a few. I mean, his his parents, they, you know, they expected the Messiah to come. So there was an expectation. But for the most part, people didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that the Lord's promises would come true. Only a small minority. But that happens in every generation. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that in every generation, there will be a small flock of Jewish people who will believe in Christ. As a matter of fact, the the. The, the order of preaching the gospel is to always to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's, a, it's an order that Paul followed throughout his ministry. He would come to a, to a city. He would go to the synagogues. He would first offer the gospel to the Jews. And always there were some who would believe in him. As a matter of fact, the early church was primarily Jewish. And even 20, 30 years later, when Jesus had, I mean, when Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles, there was still a fair number of Jews in those congregations, even in places like Galatia and even in places like Corinth, even in Rome. If you look at the early church in Rome, there were also, there, was, there were a lot of Jewish people that were part of that church. So in every generation, the Lord has a little flock now of both Jews and Gentiles of people who believe in him. Prophet Micah talked about this. Go to Micah chapter 2, verse 12. And keep in mind as we go there that Jesus had just finished talking about himself as the good shepherd and talking about that his sheep know him and he knows them. And so I want you to see how Micah uses that imagery and what he ties it to. And he talks about this, this group called the remnant. There's a small minority. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Old Testament prophet. (laughs) Contemporary of Isaiah, by the way. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Give you a moment to get there. I know we don't go there often. Those of you that are using your phones have a built-in advantage when we go to books that we don't go too often. It's not fair. Give the paper people some time. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather, notice this word, the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold. The Lord is speaking like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out. They pass through the gate. And go out by it. Can you see how this is uh, very reminiscent of how the Lord described himself as the good shepherd? He talked about the fact that he was the door and that people would go in and out and find pasture. So what Micah talks about here, Jesus talks about, only applies it to himself. And we see this, by the way, over and over again how Jesus would take details of what the Old Testament prophets had to say and then apply it to him. And now his fulfillment is with me. And he does it here. He's saying, I'm going to have a remnant. Notice in verse 12, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Now, what is the remnant of Israel? It's those in every generation who believe in him. 
when Jesus comes back, everybody that he gathers together, every Jewish person that he then gathers together, of course, will be those who believe in him. And all everybody from the Jewish nation that would go into the kingdom, they will all be believers in Jesus Christ. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel and I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Verse 13, the breaker goes up before them. They break out. They pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. Now here we have in the Old Testament now, Micah the prophet linking the shepherd and the king. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, if if they thought back to Micah, they would say to themselves, he's also declaring that he's the king. Well, who's the king in, in, in view here? The Messiah, the one who would come back in the of the line of David. So the shepherd is also the king. This is another case where those who believe the Old Testament prophets here would understand the connections between what Jesus is saying about himself and what Micah said. In other words, that Jesus here, while he in chapter 10, he didn't say it directly necessarily, but he said it in, in, in a way in which those who, who could hear the truth, those who had eyes to see, could hear that he was declaring himself to be the king that would go out before him, the Lord at their head. In Bethany, beyond the Jordan, the people came to him. And when they did, they had an opportunity to see him up close and personally. And they had an opportunity to listen to his words, very similar to the Samaritans. Remember in chapter 4, the Samaritans were in the town of Sychar when Jesus came and was thirsty and was at the well. And he asked the woman for a drink and he, he led her along. He says, I have water. If you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And, and she said, give me that water, remember. And Jesus then, <laughs> he then talked about her husbands and that she had, she had five of them. And that she then at that moment, she recognized he was a prophet. And then he led her along, surprising her again and again. To the moment when she talked about the Christ, the Messiah, and he said, he who's before you right now is the Messiah. Well, after that, that woman ran up the hill back to the city of Sychar and told everybody about this Jesus who knew everything about her. And then they came and they met Jesus and they said, please stay with us for a few days, two days. And he did. And that was enough, too. And the Samaritan men in particular were had an opportunity to hear for themselves what Jesus had to say and what he had to teach. Remember, they all concluded, yes, we. this is the son of God. This is the Messiah. They heard for themselves and they believed that Jesus was their Messiah and the son of God and the, and the savior of the world. And so same thing happened at Bethany beyond the Jordan. They had a chance to see him up close, personal. They had a chance to listen to what he had to say. Go back to John chapter 10, verse 41. They say that John performed no sign here, but it's it's also true that Jesus didn't perform any sign in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Those, most of the people who believed in him, believed in him on the basis of his words. And that was, that was the, the preferred way, remember. That was the way God really designed it. 
after all, miracles are unusual. I mean, they're only, think about it, in terms of Jesus and believing him, <laughs> there was only for a period of about three years less, really, that Jesus performed miracles. And here we are 2,000 years later. And all the time, from the time that Jesus rose from the dead, all those centuries, nobody saw a miracle. Right? Some people thought they did. Okay? But in reality, everybody from the, from the end of the first century all the way now believed in Jesus on the basis of words, on the truth, the message of the gospel. That's the way the Lord has designed things. It was only in, 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 uh, in Jerusalem, in, in, in Judea, and in Galilee, where Jesus performed these miracles at the time. He certainly did that to authenticate who he was. But also, he was dealing with a lot of hard-headed folks, like really hard-headed folks. And for them, they, if they didn't get a sign, if they didn't get a miracle, they weren't interested. I mean, that's why, that's why in, in a way, they were sort of saying, this is unusual for us, for the Jews at this point in time, because we're expecting miracles. We need them. They require a sign. And John didn't give him one. Neither did Jesus when he was in Bethany beyond the Jordan. But they heard him and they, and they could see who he was. Well, John performed no sign. Yet everything John said about this man was true. Now, what does that mean? If they were saying, and by the way, they were saying this over and over again. We're saying it to one another. What that meant was that they had paid attention. You see, in order for them to say everything that John said about this man is true, they would have had to have known the things that John said. I mean, that's, I know that's kind of obvious, but, but think about it. Not only did they have to know it, they had to remember it. And they had to, be, they had to believe it in some level. All right. They, 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 so what was happening? They, they were recalling the things that John had to say. They were comparing it now with the person who's among them, the things that he had to say, and they put them together. Everything that John had to say about Jesus was true. Now, some of these people, no doubt they actually had heard John speak in person. Because remember, it's only three years earlier when John was baptizing. And so there must have been many who had come to now to, to see Jesus at the same location who had heard John speak. But there were probably many more who hadn't, but they had heard secondhand. And for some reason, it, the, the, the words gripped them. They cherished them. They kept them. When John died, it, there was great mourning in Israel. Matter of fact, John was well-loved. The, the people, especially the common people, they revered him. They loved him. They saw him as a prophet. And this was true of many, many in Israel. Okay, they, they, he had a big impact on the nation when he came. I want to give you one example of that. I'd like you to turn to Luke now, chapter 20, verse 4. We're now focusing on John the Baptist. And, and he's a very prominent person in the Gospel of John. I mean, when I started preparing messages, I was sort of uh, amazed, actually, at how much of the Gospel of John talks about John the Baptist, you know, um, from the very first chapter. And now here again in chapter 10. Why? Because he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He was the one who was the herald for Jesus. And he said at the very outset, everything that anybody needed to know about Jesus, which was, a, which was an amazing thing to be able to cover all the ground about who this person Jesus really is. John was well loved. He was revered as a prophet by many people in Israel. 
There was a day, for example, when Jesus was in the temple and he was teaching and he was challenged, accosted by the chief priests and elders, our old friends. And they demanded that he explain how he had authority to teach in the temple. Who are you to teach in the temple? By what authority do you do that? And Jesus did a very wise thing. He asked them not about anything he was teaching, but about John. He asked about the baptism that John had performed. And he asked a very simple question. How about John? The baptism that he performed, was that from heaven or was that simply from men? Look at verse 4 of Luke chapter 20. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, then why don't you believe him? Right? So it's a good question. You know, there's a lot of people who will say, yeah, I know that the Bible is the word of God, but I just don't believe anything in it. I mean, that's kind of a, a very unusual, like a very irrational thing to say. If you really believe there's God and that he created us and you believe that the Bible is the word of God, it seems to me that like the psalmist in Psalm 129, that you would cherish each and every word as words that God has spoken for you for you to know. And yet so many don't do that. So many kind of put it aside and and they don't cherish and revere the words that, that God has spoken in his word. So they so they reason among themselves and they said, well, if we say from heaven, then he will turn around and say, why didn't you believe him? You know, why didn't you, why didn't you accept the authority that he had and listen to what he had to say about me and believe it? Then verse 6, they're thinking now, how do we answer Jesus' question? Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? But if we say from men, notice this, all the people will stone us to death. In other words, he was a very, those were fighting words. If you had said, no, that baptism was from men, that wasn't from God, people would rise up and stone them to death. Notice this, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. The people were convinced that John was a prophet. That explains how so many, when they came back to Bethany beyond the Jordan, remembered the words because they knew he was a prophet. So what are these what are these brave men, the chief priests and the Pharisees now do? So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Interesting. Then Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Genius, genius move. Just like he would, he would have he cited Psalm 110 another time. And he said, now let me ask you something. David's, Psalm 110, David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, who was he talking about? He said, you know, David died. So who is this Lord that was his Lord? And they were like, gee, we don't know. Right? He would, he, he would over and over again do things that would, would, would amaze people and how he turned things around when they wanted to trap him. This is another example of that. But notice that all the people would stone him to death if they deny that the baptism of John was from heaven. So now the people that were in Bethany beyond the Jordan with Jesus now, they were putting the whole picture together. They knew one thing, and that was that John's testimony about Jesus was 100% on target. You know, a lot of times when you want to understand the magnitude of something, you ask yourself a question. Compared to what? Like, for example, somebody may say, you know, there there are um, a million people in the world who have over a million dollars, right? 
That sounds like a lot of people until you know that there are six billion people in the world. Now it doesn't sound like so much. So, you, so very often we need to say compared to what? And when we ask that question about the people that were that said everything John said about him was true and we compare it to the reception that Jesus got in Jerusalem where they didn't think anything about John said about Jesus was true. They didn't think he was the son of God, yet these common people did. They didn't think he was the Messiah, yet the common people did. And so that shows you the greatness of what they were actually saying when they said in John 10, 41 again, everything that John said about this man was true. Everything? And, they, and by the way, they, they, they kept saying it in the week or two when they were with him and they maybe they ate with him and they heard him, what, he, what Jesus had to say. And then they would talk among one another. They're saying, look, look, remember when John said that he was the Lamb of God? That was true. We see it for ourselves. Remember when, when he said he was the Son of God? That's true, too. They were, they were ready to accept that, that Jesus, a human being, to all that all there what they could see and hear was also God's son it was astonishing it was when you think about a statement everything John said about this man was true boy I wish that people today would be able to say the same thing right because if they were they would have they would have fulfilled the entire purpose of the gospel of John these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and by believing have life in his name and again, John said breathtaking things about Jesus. We're used to it now. We're used to, yes, Jesus is the son of God. He's God in the flesh. But but really, if, if we were there in the first century, that would have been an astonishing thing. So as we close today, we're going to take a look at, once again, the things that Jesus said, I mean, that John said about Jesus, keeping in mind that everything that John said about this man was true. Well, one of the things that John said was that Jesus was the Lord. The Lord from Isaiah chapter 40. In other words, Yahweh. In other words, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what John said about him. And it was in John 1, 23. And I'd like you to turn back to that now. John 1, 23. You've already been here once this morning. He said, I'm nobody important. I'm just a voice. You know, a voice isn't even a whole person. It's just a voice. He said, that's all I am. He says, I'm small. I'm nothing. Don't ask who I am. He said, I'm just crying out in the wilderness. Look at John 1, 23. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. When, when he cited Isaiah the prophet, this was in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, and, and he was quoting a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, who was John preparing the people for? Jesus. So if he's saying, I'm asking you to make straight the way of the Lord, and I'm also saying, prepare for this one Jesus who's coming, what was he saying? Jesus is the Lord. That's an amazing statement to make. John then went on to say that he was not even worthy to loosen the straps of this man's sandals. Look at John 1, 27. 
It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, again, remember, they re- the people were like very excited about John the Baptist. They were making a big deal of him. But when he talked to the Pharisees about who he was, he says, listen, if you think I'm something, I'm nothing. There is a guy that's about to come on the scene where I'm not even worthy to get into the dust and take the thong of his sandal and untie it. That's how great this one who was to come was. John 1:27. it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He also declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he declared that Jesus was the savior of the entire world. Today, you know, people in our country make fun of Christians who say that Jesus is the one way to heaven. They reject that. They think that's silly. They say, you know, you're so narrow. You're prejudiced, right? We should all respect one another's religion. But how can you do that once you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Jesus is the one who takes away, who took away the sin of the entire world. You know, there's nobody else who did that. So therefore, we can't worship Buddha. He didn't do that. We can't worship Muhammad or Allah or the Virgin Mary. We we, we are to worship the one who came that God said would come, who was sent by the Father, and that John called the Lamb of God, who takes away the entire sin of the world. He did the one thing that the human race needed and never got from anybody else, and that was deal with the great problem that had happened when Adam and the woman fell, which is that sin entered the world. And all of us are dead, born dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus took care of all of that on the cross. Yes, he paid for our sins on the cross, but he also dealt with sin itself, the the seat of the rebellion. He took care of all of that. All of that, God the Father wrapped up and said, it's done. It's finished. So truly, he is the Lamb of God. Truly, he is the one Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which anybody can be saved. That's what John was saying when he declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Just look at verse 29 now. John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is he saying? Here he is. Look at him. Everything I'm saying now, this is the one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he. He, On behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I didn't recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. What is he saying? Now, clearly, he had recognized Jesus. I mean, Jesus was related to him, so he couldn't have been saying that. What he was saying was, I didn't know that Jesus, my cousin, was the one that God was talking about. But now I know that because God had given me a sign. He had said, when this happens, then you will know who the Messiah is, John. And that's why he said, this is he on on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him before, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. By the way, I just want you to point out, I want to point out something to you. 
you know, there's a there's a, a, a large majority of churches believe that you have to be baptized after you after you become a believer. Some of them believe you have to be baptized in order to become a believer. But I want you to notice what what baptism was really all about. Notice that John came baptizing in water. If you want to talk about who baptized, you have to say it was John the Baptist who baptized. If, so if we were if he were here today and we had a chance to interview him, we would, and we would say, hey, what's baptism for? He would say, it's real simple. I did it back then so that Jesus would be manifested to Israel, so that they would recognize who their Messiah was, that they would be able to identify with the one that the Lord had sent. That's why I did it. It was for a manifestation to Israel. And you have to say to yourself, well, boy, I don't know, but all the people getting baptized today, um, most of them are Gentiles. And yet the purpose of this baptism was that the Lord would be manifested to Israel. So that because, again, Israel, they required signs. Baptism. Remember, when 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 uh, the, the, the leaders came to John, the first thing they said, are you the Christ? Why did they say that? Because he was baptizing. So so it was a sign to Israel that the Christ was here. Now, we certainly don't need that today. Right. And that's certainly not the way that people look at baptism today. I just give that to you as an aside. Verse 32, John testified, saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on Jesus. I didn't recognize him before that, but he who sent me, God, to baptize in water, said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one. And he said a very interesting thing about this one. He said, this is God speaking. He says, this is the one who also baptizes. Now, people in the church today say, see, I told you, baptism is is for today, water baptism. Well, but notice what baptism he pointed to. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The the baptism of the church is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34. I myself, John is speaking, have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That was another thing here that John had said about Jesus and the people in Bethany beyond Jordan said that was part of the everything. That also is true. <clears throat> John had testified that Jesus is the Son of God. This was this was the whole root, the basis of the great dispute and controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It was this reason that they wanted to stone him. Because they realized when he said, like, I and the Father are one, they realized he's saying he's God. Or when when he said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, they realized, wait a minute, he's declaring himself to be God. What did they want to do? Did they rejoice and did they say, everything that John said about this man was true? No, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. And so, again, compared to what? If you have, on the one hand, all the religious leaders in Jerusalem hearing Jesus saying that I am God's son and then wanting to stone him, compare that to the reception he gets on the other side of the Jordan where people were celebrating and convinced that what John had to say was true, that this truly is the son of God. You know, John moved to another place where there was a lot of water. And it was a place called Anon. And he was also baptizing there. It turned out to be the place where he gave his final testimony about Jesus. 
This is what he said about Jesus there. He said that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. I want you to keep keep in mind all the things we've already seen. He said that Jesus is the Lord, the God of Israel. He said that he wasn't even worthy. John wasn't worthy to even loosen the straps of his sandals. He declared that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. And he declared that Jesus is the son of God. Those are all the things that that are we are asked to believe in order to understand who he is, that he's the Lord. okay, that he is the one who has saved the whole world, that he died for our sins, that he is God in the flesh. And now here that he's the Messiah, the Christ that was especially needed that the Jews needed to recognize him as that. Look at John chapter 3, verse 28. John 3, 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Who was John sent ahead of? Who is he preparing the way for? Who is he the herald of? Lord Jesus. So what is he saying? He says, I'm not the Messiah, but the one that I've been sent ahead of, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. Okay, these are all the things that John said about Jesus and the people in Perea, in Bethany beyond the Jordan, said all those things are true. Every last one of them. John also said this. He said that Jesus had come from heaven and that Jesus is above all creation. Look at John 3.31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus came from heaven. He kept saying that. He kept saying, I'm from above. I've come from the Father. I have a mission from heaven. I, I, I started in heaven. Right? He's the word who was in heaven from the beginning with God, and he became flesh. The words that he speaks, they're all the words of God. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So John also witnessed that Jesus had come from heaven and is above all creation. He said all these things, and yet the, the, the Jewish leaders were saying that he's just a man. He's worse than a man. Remember, they said he has a demon. He has a demon. And yet, who is he? He's from above. He's from heaven. He's God. And he's above all. He's above all of creation. And John said that the words that Jesus speaks are God's words. And he said that the father loves Jesus as his only son. Look at John chapter one. I mean, John chapter three, verse 34. Look at John three thirty-four as we wrap up this morning. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. This is another thing that John said about Jesus. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. How many times did Jesus try to convince the Pharisees and the priests that that he was there to speak the words of God? In fact, he said to them, you don't hear the words of God because you are not of God. 
And he was very challenging to the to the leaders too. You know, he said, "You are of your father, the devil." Why? Because they didn't they didn't recognize that what Jesus was saying was from the, their God. Now the people in Berea did, and this is what John had said: "For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, or he gives the Spirit without measure." And the Father loves the Son, and notice this, has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son, and he has given all things, all things into his hand, including the gift of eternal life. All these things that John had said about Jesus are true. That was recognized by the people in Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's what people need to recognize. Now they need to understand that God has given all things into the hands of Jesus. And that includes the authority to give eternal life to anybody who believes in him. So I want you to think about the the astounding nature of every one of these things. We get used to it. But I want you to think about it from the point of view of a human being, a friend, maybe a relative, who who has so far did not want to hear about Jesus. And and then to understand from their point of view, the mind boggling things that are true about him, that the whole Old Testament prophesied that one would come, that would be the Messiah, the king. And that Israel, who to this day is abused and attacked, would one day be the center of the world and that there would be a king who would rule forever. That's amazing from a human point of view. I mean, think about that being announced on CNN tomorrow morning. You want to get a sense of how amazing this is. That, he, that this person, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, born of a woman, is the Lord God. That, that this one is the savior of the entire world. The entire world. Every, think about how people would, on a human level, would think that that was a mind-boggling thing to say. Think about all the sins, all the evil in this whole world. Think about, think about all the murders, all the wars, all of the uh, sexual sins, everything. And he's the savior of all of that. He wiped out all of that in God's eyes. And so simply anyone who believes in him, God, who created everything, who's always perfect, declares a sinner to be righteous on the basis of the blood of this man, a man who lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross. That's what happened. It's mind-boggling from a human point of view. But with the eyes of faith, it all makes sense. That God loves this Jesus as his only son, but not only that, he's given everything into his hands. That, that Jesus Christ has the authority to give eternal life. Think about that. If there's one thing that's true about every member of the human race, it's that we die. Right? And if there's one thing that, 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 that the human race has tried to reject, not think about, overcome, it's death. I mean, on a small level, that's what our health care system is all about. We spend billions and billions of dollars to perform to, to prolong life because we're afraid of death. And yet Jesus came and he says, I have the secret. Right? I have the fountain of youth. I have eternal life, life that never ends. And even though you die physically, you will live forever with the life of God. I mean, this is radical stuff. And yet all these things are true about Jesus. And not only that, but but some simple people on the other side of the Jordan who had just really heard John the Baptist say these things were now prepared to recognize that these are all true and then come to a better and better understanding of the mind-boggling implications. 
And I hope today we do the same thing and to strengthen us and build us up for our encounters in the world like Jesus had with those high priests and those Pharisees so that we can be grounded and rooted in the amazing facts about who our Lord and Savior is and that somehow we can communicate a sense of that whenever we witness to others, not only the unbeliever, but when we're trying to build up one another and to say this is who we worship. We worship the God who has the authority and given it to his son to believe in him and have eternal life. John 3.36. He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the stakes are high. But everything that Jesus testified about, I mean, that John testified about Jesus was true. Now in Jerusalem, in the center of religious life, and it's true today, religion, of course, is the opposite of Christianity. But in the center of Jewish religious life, John's testimony was ignored. Just a few miles to the east, though, just step over the Jordan and you find that there's tremendous, tremendous fruit. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all these mind-boggling truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've revealed them. There's no way that the most imaginative human being could ever, ever possibly see in all of these things in a human being that are true. So you had to reveal them. We thank you that you did this in the Gospel of John. And we thank you also, Father, that we, we have eternal life on this basis, simple basis of hearing the message of truth and believing it. And we have, a, we have an amazing opportunity to do the same for others by simply preaching the truth about Jesus. As we close today, Father, we just want everybody to, to believe. And we, we need to understand the message in order to do that. And the message is simple. That Jesus Christ is your son, that he is God in the flesh, and that he did come, and that he did die for the sins of the world, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead by you, Father, on the third day. And that all anybody has to do is hear that message and believe it, and they have eternal life. And as we close today, Father, we do want to pray for the members of the body of Christ, particularly those who are being persecuted. We pray for the success of Pastor Kingsley's mission. We also pray for our sister in Christ this morning, Joyce, that she get healed up real fast and all the other things as well. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.